The not-so-great outdoors contains stories of a graphic nature. Your discretion is advised. The outdoors are great, except when they're not. Welcome to the not-so-great outdoors. We're your guides. I'm Seth. And I'm Tiff. And this week, we are talking about the butcher baker. I don't like that. I don't like that. It's not great. But before we get into that, horrible stuff we have a few little uh little business to take care of so first i just wanted to shout out i got this shirt off of etsy and i realize i'm mirrored right now but it says true crime glass of wine bed by nine and it's very me and if you want to get your own that looks just like this it's impressed clothing on etsy and i'll put a link in the description below but i just really like it it came super fast it's really well made it's really well made it's super soft and i love it so shout out to them and the other thing i'm going to be talking about is so i made this sign which mostly i just wanted to show everybody but also we are potentially going to be turning my guest room into more of an actual pod studio to be determined as to how we're going to do that but be on the lookout because the looks of this might be changing. Super fun. And if you guys liked our previous episode where we shared our own personal spooky experience, we really enjoy doing that and we would love to keep doing that. So every five episodes or so, we want to share either personal stories or your stories. In order to share your stories, we have to first hear your stories. Uh, if you have a spooky experience or if your friend has a spooky experience or somebody that you have them send us an email to not so great outdoors at gmail.com because we want to share your story. If you want your identity to be kept a secret, just say that in the email and we won't say who you are. We'll just read your story. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we dive in? Okay, so I figured out why uh, the glitching was happening really badly and it was because I was using my computer to both read my notes and record. So my notes are now printed out. And so normally my stories are like two pages of notes with normal margins. And we have four pages today with, with narrow tiny margins. margins. I'm just gonna, just gonna hold that. Yeah, so let's crack into it, shall we? Gonna be really dramatic about this. Let's do it. You need, you need a little desk so you like, you know how news anchors like straighten their paper. <laughs> I have, okay, so my laptop is currently sitting on a box from when toilet paper was delivered to our house. Quarantine vibes. Cardboard boxes are what I got. So I'll tap these on my leg. Let's get, let's get started. So this story mostly takes place in the 70s in the great Alaskan wilderness. But first, we need to go to Idaho because we're going to learn a little bit about our killer's backstory. And before I dive in... I suggest that you do as we have done and grab your nearest alcoholic beverage because this one is a bit rough. I'm not going to go into any specific like horrendous details in this. If you want to know horrendous details, you can Google it. But there are a lot of victims and so it's also just a longer story. And also, <laughs> I just want to say, I promise this has something to do with the not so great outdoors, but we have to get there. <laughs> So also disclaimer, drink responsibly, drink with friends, drink responsibly, drink responsibly. So Robert Christian Hansen, because his parents knew what he was going to end up being, was born on February 15th, 1939 in Esterville, Iowa to Edna and Christian Hansen. His father was a Danish immigrant who owned a bakery 
and Robert or Bobby as I'm going to call him for the rest of this even though everyone called him Bob because he's an asshole and I'm going to call him what I want to call him idolized his father he was a super strict father I didn't find any signs that his father was abusive on the internet but everything said he was very authoritarian very strict he made Bobby like work in the bakery and stuff like that so he was very like my way or the highway kind of dad. So growing up he was skinny and shy and he had a stutter. He also had severe acne that left him quote permanently scarred and I have thoughts about this that we'll dive into but he saw his face as one big pimple and we're going to now go to the drive and there is a photo and it says Robert Hansen high school and none of these photos are like the world's best quality photos it was the 60s I, I mean yeah it's not the best quality photo but I'm not seeing any obvious like horrendous scarring yeah and so none of the photos that I could find of this man make his face look that bad but I'm also like okay I remember being in high school anything that was even like minorly wrong with my face I thought was like this huge ordeal I thought everybody noticed it and so yeah. I don't think that he was as badly scarred as a lot of people and himself thought he was. Again, I did never see him in person, so I can't say that as a fact, but it just seems like it was more of a self-perceived hideousness than an actual one. The following quote is from the New York Daily News. Bobby says, quote, going back in my life, I was, I guess what you might call very frustrated. I would see my friends and so forth going out on dates and so forth and had a tremendous desire to do the same thing. From the scars and so forth on my face, you can probably see, I could see why girls wouldn't want to get close to me. During my junior high or high school days, I could not control my speech at all. I was always so embarrassed and upset with it from people making fun of me that I hated the word school. So he didn't have... A great time at school. Yeah. Uh, he was also left-handed but forced to write with his right hand and some sources indicated that this was by his parents but also that was just kind of the thing in that time like my grandmother is left-handed but writes with her right hand for the same reason like she was forced to not use her left hand because it was seen as like evil. Yeah um, I mean and parent, like modern day lefty you still get people who are really weirded out by the fact that you're left-handed. And I don't know, I just remember in college, not so much in high school, but because I went to high school with the same people who have known me since like preschool. So they all kind of knew about it. But in college, people would look and be and at me and be like, you're left-handed? And they just like could not wrap their brain around the fact that yes, this can write sentences just as well as this hand. Not on my body, but still, but yeah. you know, this hand can write just like the other hand. Yeah, and I think Crazy. it's just like, like you're like a unicorn. You can write with your left hand. So, yeah. but he says what? that having to use his right hand when he was actually left hand made his stutter even worse. So not great, but also not as bad as a lot of like serial killers childhoods so blah 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 where am i at during his childhood and high school years he became a big game hunter so he would go out and go hunting and it's indicated that the sense of power and control that he felt when he was hunting was really important to him because he felt so out of control in his entire life and it was a place that he could like be good at which is you know always important he was also in Boys Chorus, Pep Club, Basketball, Didn't Letter, Track, Did Letter, and Into Fishing and Archery. Also, and this is just sad, 
When he graduated from high school and his whole class of 31 people, they spelled his name wrong. They spelled his name wrong? Yeah, in the high school yearbook, his senior year, there were only 31 people. I'm thinking, I'm like, there's only 31 people. Surely y'all have time to spell check. I was in yearbook. It's not that hard. And like, his name is Robert Hansen. How? There's 12 letters. Like, come on. All right. So when he graduated in 1957, at the ripe age of 18, he joined the Army Reserve like so many do. He served for, so I took these notes while I was drinking, and it says he served for one ye. He served for one year. <laughs> and became an assistant drill instructor in Pocahontas, Iowa. And that same year, he had his first sexual encounter. And then in 1961, oh, he was discharged from the military after that one year. So no longer a military man. And then in 1961, he married a, quote, young woman. We don't know much about her, probably because very soon she's going to divorce him and get out of Dodge and didn't want to be associated with him anymore. Let's talk about the first sign that something was wrong. There's already been so many. The, he likes hunting because it gives him a sense of power and control. Like that's a little red flag for me. All right, well, let's talk about a big flailing one. So December 7th, 1960. Now keep in mind at this point, he is a 21-year-old man. So Bobby forces a 16-year-old co-worker at the bakery to help him burn down the school bus yard because he hated school that much. You're so far removed from high school at 21. Yeah, like it's been years. So this, uh, this teen that he forced to help him turned both of them in. And this is the first time Bobby went to prison. Also, here's a fun fact. He was also a volunteer firefighter at this time. So he was the first one on the scene, you know, because he set the freaking fire. They're proving the point that the person who did it will insert themselves into the investigation or the, you know, actions thereafter the incident takes place. I'm gonna need a refill. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. So he was sentenced to three years in prison. His first wife at this point divorces him after only being married for six months. He only served, and this isn't the worst one of these that we're gonna encounter, but he only served 20 months of his three year sentence. But let's talk about his time behind bars, shall we? While he was in jail, they clearly do a lot of like psychiatric assessment and stuff like that. And he was assessed as having a quote, infantile personality marked by childlike hysteria, volatile emotions, and clingy fixations on others. And another source that I found said that he was at this time also diagnosed with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. I know that he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder later. I don't know if it was at the same time. After 20 months, he gets out of jail and it's 1963. And a few months later, he marries another local woman. You'd think after the first marriage ending after six months, no other woman's gonna go anywhere near that. But like she knew that he had done these things when she married him and she was like, it's fine. So that's page one. Let's talk about his new wife. Darla Marie Hendrickson Hansen was a devout Christian. She knew about the arson conviction and the vibe that I got on the internet was basically she thought she could change him and she could save him. Just to any person out there who gets into a relationship thinking they're gonna fix that person 
run. We're all guilty of it. We've all done it, but if you're young and you haven't done it yet, it's not gonna work. So while Bay lives in Iowa, he, after being released from jail for the fire, he started like petty thievery and he was caught a few times, but never formally convicted. And whenever he would like end up in jail or end up in handcuffs, Darla would tell him like he needed to go to church and he would do it for a little bit. And then he would, you know, continue to steal. Four years later, after they get married, it's 1967, and they relocate to Anchorage, Alaska. Here, eventually, he opens a small bakery. They have two children. He took flying lessons and bought his own plane. And Alaska, right at this point in time, was freaking booming. So they were building the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline. It was just tons of people were relocating there. But as with any economic boom, crime was also booming. While they were living in Alaska, he got a reputation around town as a great baker. He was a family man and he was also a record-breaking hunter. And so he became known around town as just this like all-around good guy, like pillar of the community. He also became a regular at the local strip clubs. And here's some fun strip club names from the time. Are you ready? Wild Cherry, Arctic Fox, Booby Trap, <laughs> and the Great Alaskan Bush Company. No, no. Yeah, that's yeah, real. Booby that's hilarious, but no. That's a real one? That's a real name? Those are all real. <laughs> Oh my gosh. At these, uh, you know, strip clubs like Booby Trap, he became known for women having to make the first move. So like the dancers would have to go up to him. Similarly, when he would pick up sex workers, he would wait for them to like say how much it was. He wouldn't like ask. He would wait for them to initiate that conversation. And he got known for this. And unfortunately for all of the women we're about to talk about, he seemed harmless enough. Patrons at the bakery would say he was quiet and reserved, but friendly. One of his victims said, quote, he sort of looked like the perfect dork. And if you go to the drive, and I think I have a couple of other photos of him from when he was more adult aged, he literally just looks like every other dad in the 80s. You know, like the one of him in front of the fireplace, mm -hmm. he's not terrible looking. No, he is not as like horrific as he thinks he is. There's like multiple layers to that, I think. Like he, it's unfortunate that people see themselves in such a terrible way. Like that's one part. But also you said one of his victims. So that leads me to believe there's a bunch so, I mean, it it wouldn't, I don't think it would be hard for him to lure a woman. You know what I mean? Because, like, yeah. he's not so attractive that it's, oh, my gosh, you know. But then he's not bad looking either. You know, he's yeah, like, this average guy. He looks average. He looks pretty harmless. Like, yeah. and this is why we trust nobody, children. So once they got to Alaska, he started really getting in the groove of being a complete trash human being. Great. So in 1971, he attempted to abduct 18-year-old Susie Heppard at gunpoint. Days later, he successfully abducted an exotic dancer. He took her to a cabin raped her, and then started driving back to Anchorage. Bobby, ever the dramatic, pulled over, pulled out his gun, and told her to run. 
She didn't because she knew what would happen if she ran and instead she begged him for her life. So he had her write down the names and addresses of her family and threatened to kill her family if she ever went to the authorities. Five star trash human being. Yeah. And it doesn't get better. This is a case where we consistently see somebody who's seen as a good person getting away with doing horrible things. And it's just infuriating. I'm just gonna... Yeah, okay. Every time you take a drink, I'm taking a drink. I just want to announce that. So so you know, like if I take a drink, she, she's like, oh, it's going to get bad. Okay, so it's Christmas now. Yeah. 1971, the nude body of a college student was found in the same area as this cabin. And now, a little bit about this cabin of his. It was a hunting cabin, and it was on the Kenai Peninsula, which is about a three-hour drive from Anchorage. So it's out there. The dancer that we just talked about heard about this story and was like, that's the person who attacked me. So he was arrested because she was accusing him of a crime and held on $50,000 bail. And this could be the end of our story. But based on all of these pages and this still pretty full glass of wine, it is not. So how did he get out of this? Well, he had a spotless reputation. He was seen as a stand-up citizen and the friendly neighborhood baker. And he also had the support of his church minister who said that there's no way he could have ever done these things. He also had a reputation of being the slimy dude in the strip club that you have to come up and proposition him. Like, you have to go to him. Like, he had that reputation too. But who trusts strippers? They should! Strippers know all the shit. Like, yeah. they know. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, he was a pillar of the community. All of them yeah. are known by the... I just wanted to point that out. Like, if you've ever listened to any, like, real true crime that takes place in real communities places, if they're a pillar of the community, someone has dirt on them. I'm just saying. Like, there's no clean pillar of the community. Yeah. Okay, rant over. I'm okay. just saying. So, because he was a pillar of the community, the entire community, like, turned on this dancer. And because of all the backlash, she ended up just dropping the charges. He was sentenced to five years for the assault of Susie Hepper. That was his first victim. And she was not, to my knowledge, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I think she was not a dancer. She was just a community member. And that's why he actually got convicted of this one. I could be wrong on that. And if I am, I'm sorry. But did he serve all five years that he was sentenced to? Probably not. No. Do you want to take a guess as to how much of his five-year sentence he actually served? I'm going to try to think of a number that's not going to make me really mad. But anything less than the five years is going to make me mad. I'm going to go six months. Uh, even less? He served only three months. What? Of a five-year sentence. There's not enough left in here for me to go through much more of this. I still have two pages. I'm so upset. Make I'm so more. upset. <laughs> Great. We haven't even got to how this is relevant to our like our our premise. Our actual Just premise. Just know that it gets worse. Well, I mean, you said hunting cabin, so I'm like, okay. Well, I mean, there's that. We're yeah, outside just, in a hunting. It's cabin, just way still. worse. During his three-month sentence, he was a, quote, model prisoner. And he also convinced the psychiatrist that he was cured of his mental illnesses. So wait, are we still, we're still in the 60s, right? It's the end of the 60s, yeah. Well, no, it's the early 70s. Yeah, okay, so we didn't have the understanding of mental illness that we have. So there's that. 
Yeah. So in 1973, his killing spree began. Yay. Yay. And it's speculated that he was emboldened by the fact that he got off so easy after literally getting caught for those first two. And so he was like, yeah, might as well just do worse things. His attitude towards women was basically that if they would sell sex for money, then he could kill and or rape them. And quote, this is a quote from Bobby, quote, she had to come out and say we could do it, but it's going to cost you some money. Then she was no longer, I guess, what you might call a decent girl. According to Hansen, his first victim was an exotic dancer or sex worker. He pulled a gun on her as he drove out of town and she fought back. So he stabbed her in the neck with her own knife. He buried her in a shallow grave and she was discovered in 1980. And her true identity is still unknown. So then, and this is just a couple of just like quick disappearances. In 1973, Megan Emmerich, a 17-year-old, disappears. Two years later, in 1975, Mary Thrill, a 23-year-old, disappears. In 1977, Bobby, ever the dumbass, steals a chainsaw and gets caught. But again, because the justice system favors people who are active in their communities, he is released after serving only one year of his five-year sentence. He served longer for stealing the chainsaw than kidnapping a child. I have no words. I have words. They're just not appropriate. I mean, yeah, that's that's really what I mean. I have all kinds, but none that can be recorded and kept. So during his one year sentence, he was uh, again diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And this time he was prescribed lithium, which is a common treatment for bipolar disorder. Over the next several years, he kidnapped, raped, and murdered a number of women. He later would confess to, are you ready for the numbers? Yep. 30 rapes and as many as 21 murders. We don't know the exact number and we will get to it. Yeah. Just gonna. Yeah. Just a number of murders. Like, is that like, so 20 some murders and 30 some rapes or like 20 some of the 30 some rapes also a murder? Yeah. Or is that like, okay, I was like, or is that like, is no, that- those, those numbers I'm, I believe are inclusive. So let's actually, that is great into my next little uh, section here. Let's talk about what he would do to these women. Once he graduated to raping and murdering sex workers, this is what he would do. So first he'd pick them up from wherever they were working. He would take them to his house. You, I mean, the house that he shared with his wife and children, okay? He took them into his house and would lock them in the basement, which was off limits to the rest of his family. And this is also where he kept, like, all of his hunting trophies and stuff like that. And so while he, they were in the basement, he would bind them and rape and torture them for hours. Once he was tired of that... He would fly the women, remember he had his own plane, to his cabin. Once they were out there, he would release them blindfolded into the woods and hunt them down like game. Once he caught them and killed them, he would take a trophy from their bodies, a piece of jewelry or something like that, because he's a trophy hunter, and then he would bury the body in the woods. It's messed up. Like, that's horrific. Yeah, and I... When I first heard this case, I remembered that story. I think it's called The Most Dangerous Game about people that were like being hunted. And I was like, what? Like somebody actually did that. And that's why, like, it's, I know uh, that- you know, it's not so great outdoors. 
Yeah. Like, I know that's the premise of, like, several movies, but, but those are fiction. You always think, like, well, that could never really happen. Or, you know, everybody has this like, fog that they're like, well, that could never happen to me. That could never happen yeah. to my community. But, like, that is, like, a new level of I never thought that would actually happen, like, in real life. Oh, my gosh. The plus side is there is justice at the end of this. But we have... <laughs> Because if this is an episode that you left with, like, and we don't know whatever happened, I would quit if you left me like that. I would quit no, this. I have an answer for you this week. Next week, we will be back to we don't know what happened. So, yeah, okay. I'll be prepared. Okay, so let's talk about his wife because that's my next bullet. Because, like I said in that last bullet, which is more like a paragraph, it's fine. I write my notes how I want to. He took these women to his house. Let's talk about her because this was her house too. So Bob and Darla, by this point, they were pretty much living separate lives. So she had a job of her own. She tutored, quote, learning disabled children. So she was also responsible for all of the household expenses. So paying for the house, paying for the food, all of that. She took care of the kids. She, you know, was basically the only parent in this situation. He ran the bakery, but all of their money was separate. And in the summers, she would take the kids to Arkansas to visit family. And you'll notice, I don't have a lot of the months in here, but a lot of the months I do have were in the summer. So it's likely because of those two pieces of information that she wasn't there. And she, quote, knew her husband was up to no good, but she just thought he was like sleeping with prostitutes. She didn't think he was, you know, murdering them. This continued for several years, including the following victims. And some of these women were never seen or found again. And I'm just going to say, while we can speculate wildly that these were all his victims, I have a list later where we talk about the victims that we know he murdered and separate those from the victims that we're pretty sure he murdered, but they're all just in one list right now. So don't come at me. Joanne Messina disappeared in 1960 and her body was found that same year near where his first unnamed victim was found. Roxanne Eastland. 24, disappeared that same year, 1980. Did I say 1960? Those first two were both 1980, whatever I said. Our next one is Lisa Futrell, 41, also in 1980. Andrea Altieri, 22, disappeared in 1981. Sherry Morrow, 23, disappeared in 1981, and her body was found in a shallow grave in 1982. Sue Luna, 23, disappeared in 1982. Paula Golding, 17, disappeared in 1983 and her body was found later that year. So let's talk about how he finally gets caught. So keep in mind, he's been doing this for basically 12 years and he's been arrested a lot and he keeps getting off. June 13th, 1983, Cindy Paulson, a 17-year-old sex worker, was working on Anchorage's 4th Avenue when a man pulled up and offered her $200. He didn't seem threatening like we've talked about, so she got in. Once she was in the car, he handcuffed her and placed a gun to her head. He took her to his house, took her to the basement, and raped and tortured her for hours. When he was done with her for the night, he put a chain around her neck and secured her to a wooden post and then fell asleep on the couch. The next morning, 
he took Cindy to Merrill Field, which is like an airstrip where his airplane was because he was gonna, you know, take her into the wilderness and hunt her down. She was handcuffed and sitting on the floor of the back seat. And now this is where he makes his mistake. He left her in the car to go get his plane ready and stuff. She was handcuffed in front of her. So she took her chance, crawled into the front seat, opened the door and ran. She ran all the way to 6th Avenue in only a t-shirt and underwear, and she flagged down a car. Side note, every time somebody gets away from a horrible situation and they flag down a like car to help them, I'm always so nervous that it's gonna get worse. It doesn't in this yeah. case, but I'm just like, oh my gosh, you just escaped one psycho. What if you're just going to a worse psycho? <laughs> Luckily, this was a good guy. His name was Richard Yacht. And he took her to a local inn and then alerted authorities. So once the police managed to track Cindy down, she had gone to a different motel and was still sitting just like in her motel room handcuffed. The police get there and they unhandcuff her and ask her what happened and stuff like that. And she was able to describe the house, the room that she was in, and that she was taken to the airport, like the uh, Merrill Field. And so they took her back and she picked out his plane. But the police go to his house and he denies everything because he's Bobby and he's a pillar in the community and he wouldn't do that. And to top it all off, and this isn't the first time this has happened, but his friends lied to give him an alibi. So they just, they wanted to help him make it go away. So it couldn't have been him. He was with me all day yesterday, all night last night. So at this point, the police have started finding bodies all over the place. They've got this woman who was abducted. They don't have a suspect because his alibi checked out and they think we have a serial killer. So they call the FBI, which they probably should have done like five years ago, but whatever. So, and this is really, this is actually really cool because this is one of the first times that FBI profiling was used to get a warrant, which is so cool. But so FBI profiler, John Douglas was brought in to help. And the next thing I'm going to say is like a really long quote. So bear with me. He quote, theorized that the killer would be an experienced hunter with low self-esteem and a history of being rejected by women and would feel compelled to keep souvenirs of his murders, such as victims, jewelry, or even body parts. He came to suspect Hansen upon learning of Hansen's hunting skill and socially isolated childhood, end quote. So he pretty much, you know, described, you know, the town baker. The pillar of the community. So at this point, the police are finally getting warmer. And Cindy's description in conjunction with this FBI profile gave them enough probable cause for a search warrant of his home. So we're getting it. So on October 27th, 1983, police searched Bobby's house. Finally, some of the things they found included jewelry belonging to the victims, tons of newspaper clippings about the murders and the bodies, and his murder weapon of choice. They also found this map of the Alaskan wilderness that had little X's on it. And we'll later find out that those little X's were where he buried bodies. So the police were able to use ballistics to match his gun to the murder weapon in these murders. Good police work. And he eventually confessed to 17 murders. Now, like I said, 
he marked on his little map little spots where these people were buried and so they would fly him out to those spots and while heavily guarding him he would show them the bodies that was part of his deal because he confessed so he got a deal so i'm gonna list his known victims and then his uh, suspected victims that the authorities are pretty sure he's also responsible for also before i do this list some of these people we don't know their actual names so they were given names by either the police or the public i am using those i don't particularly like using those because sometimes it negates that that was a real person but that's all we have right now hansen is known to have murdered lisa fatrell 41 malai larson 28 Suluna, 23, Tammy Peterson, 20, Angela Federn, 24, Teresa Watson, Delyn Sugar Frey, Paula Golding, Andrea Fish Altieri, Sherry Morrow, 23, Eklutna Annie, Joanna Messina, Horseshoe Harriet, and Roxanne Eastland, 24. And then he denied murdering the following three women, but authorities are convinced that he also killed Celia Beth Van Zenten, 17, Megan Emmerich, 17, and Mary Thrill, 22. So Frank Rothschild, the assistant district attorney, said, quote, as I sat there watching Hansen, there was a transformation that took place that was just amazing. His face got really red and literally the hair on the back of his neck stood up. And that was when he changed to my eye from Bob the Baker to Bob the serial killer. And all of a sudden I'm looking at this guy thinking, there's the guy who killed all those people. So we did get justice for these women, although it was a bit late in my opinion because he had been arrested so many times and people just kept sticking up for him, but whatever. He was sentenced to life plus 461 years and he dead now. He died in prison in 2014 at the age of 75. And that is the story of the butcher baker from Alaska, Robert Hansen. I just, I, I don't even know what to say. Yeah, I, I warned you that this was a rough one. It begs the question, like, why why the justice system is still so broken? Like, there are so many cases like this. There are so many instances where the person who clearly, who we know did it, there's like five hands pointing, they did it, you know, with solid evidence, but they still, it's like they look for a reason to not convict them. And they just grab at any little thing that they can. So in my opinion, just because they're a pillar of the community doesn't mean that they can't be horrible people. Yeah. You know, like just because and like it's dangerous to make somebody a pillar of the community because what happens when you remove a pillar, the entire community falls apart. Mm-hmm. And people put way too much emphasis on, but they're a pillar of the community and they think we'll fall apart if you remove that. You're already falling apart. You just refuse to see it. Like well, and the other thing that I feel is that people don't want to be wrong. They're like, he can't be that because I've trusted him, you know? 
nobody yeah, ever wants to be I've proven thought. wrong. So that's, that's our case for this week. It was a downer. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Check us out on social media. You can find all of our stories and all of our posts on Pivot Explorers, hashtag NSGO. You can also find out more details about the episodes that we have already released, including this one at piff-explorers.com slash not so great outdoors. Um, yeah, we want to hear from you. You know, we had a really great time, you know, talking about these stories and, and we've gotten some really great feedback about you guys. One person in particular said that they really wanted to meet me because of my Russian government comment in another episode. So we want to know. We want to know you guys. We want to talk to you guys. We want to hear your stories and your thoughts. Check us out. You know, new content coming every week on Thursday. In the meantime, stay safe out there. Thanks for watching. Our music is provided by Purple Planet. Our art and logos are by Katherine Dodds. Find us on social media using the hashtag NSGOPod or contact us via email at notsogreatoutdoors at gmail.com.